0: Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, the weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Jared Bumpers to the studio. He's back with me as co-host, and today we're going to be talking about the pastor and theological education.
1: Jared, welcome back to Preaching and Preachers. Thank you. Excited to be here. I want to talk about theological education, and so I'd love to to begin just with kind of a historical question on how theological education has shifted over the last— 30 years or so? What are some major changes that you've seen?
0: Yeah, thank you for the question. And uh, boy, again, it's good to be in the studio with you today and to reflect uh, on this topic, which will be relevant to um, so many of our listeners, because our the composition of our, of our listenership, best we know it, is, is largely comprised of local church ministers and those preparing for ministry, seminary students, and so forth. And so on one sense, it's sort of expected that a guy like me uh, would be in the studio talking about theological education and why it matters. But uh, but really, the heart behind today's conversation is not just that, that formal expectation, but just a desire for the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be led and served by people, by ministers, who are best equipped to lead and serve most faithfully. Hmm. Now, that doesn't have to happen in the context of a theological institution like Midwestern Seminary. That preparation doesn't have to happen. But traditionally, it, it most commonly has, and currently it most commonly does. And I think that is, generally speaking, a healthy and a good thing having said that theological education has changed so much You use the time frame 30 years and uh, that's a little bit longer than i have been uh, engaged in local church ministry i'm more around that 25 year mark began a sense of call to ministry in college and uh shortly thereafter began to get little opportunities to to minister while in college but boy so much has changed in the past in the past 25 or so years you know 25 years ago online programs were, were really in their infancy and typically that looked like you you paid money to have some some sort of uh, video recording shipped to you. It was so limited and the technology was so primitive and even accreditation standards really reduced how many of those hours towards a degree you could complete online. Right. Th- that for folks like me in the late 90s and, and then for me personally in the early 2000s, going to seminary, uh, it was not really a live option. Like, do I go online or do I move? And so my wife and I just kind of took it for granted. God's calling us. So like we go to study. And boy, that's changed a lot the past 20 years. Now online programs, which we have here and we're very proud of here, means that theological education has literally never been more accessible. Anytime, any place. Anyone really can receive that training, at least through the medium of online education. Now, we talk a lot here about theological education, residentially speaking, and emphasize that and herald that. We don't see the online program in competition with the residential program, but we do place an ongoing priority on residential because the general principle is this. The closer to campus a student is, the more we can shape them. Uh, if you live on campus, we have a great opportunity to shape you than if you live off campus. If you live in the Kansas City area, we have more of an opportunity to shape you than if you live 100 miles away, probably more 100 miles away than 1,000 miles away, based upon one's proximity campus, coming to events, attending J-terms, being in chapel, conferences, being known by the professor, mentorship opportunities, and all the rest. So I would say the primary way it's changed the past 20, 25, 30 years has been the the advent of of online education, and we rejoice in that. Uh, We have a program now that enables us to reach anywhere around the globe, and we kind of are everywhere around the globe. We now have students from all 50 states, and uh, last count a couple months ago, now 63 countries, including many that are the most hard-to-reach places in the most difficult contexts for one, to minister the gospel of
1: Christ in. So we're grateful for what God's given us. Yeah. Do you think, to pull this out or drag this out a little bit longer here, but the COVID crisis over the last year and a half, two years, do you feel like that has accelerated the online uh, movement or or – just give some thoughts or reflections there.
0: Yeah, I think you had some institutions in Midwestern, some one who was already doing online education and doing, I think, with excellence pre-COVID. You had other institutions that, that maybe principally or just just kind of logistically, operationally, didn't have the resources uh, to engage in online education. Then COVID hit, and they were kind of forced to, uh, to pivot pretty quickly. And then you had within those two extremes, those two polarities I just referenced, you had institutions anywhere amongst the middle that they were kind of sort of doing it, maybe halfway doing it, had maybe recently launched it with excellence. And I do think COVID and the dislocation brought kind of made far more institutions pay greater attention to their online game, invest more heavily in their online programs. So for us at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College, it wasn't so much a new like level of investment we needed to make, but it did give us the opportunity to expand offerings, more classes, more degrees to move not just from a from an asynchronous format, but to move to synchronous offerings. You say, what's the difference? Well, asynchronous means that it is not real time. You're, you're not engaging real time live with a professor with fellow students. And so, for us, we were able to offer not just our asynchronous, text based and video supplemented, but also synchronous classes where students around the globe could be taught real time live through video from professors here and engaging with other students. And so it, it really enabled us and called for us really to expand our portfolio of possibilities that students can have. And we're really glad it did.
1: Yeah, we, we were set up well to do that. I know that uh, some other institutions had to make some greater adjustments, but it was a good opportunity. If someone were to ask you, okay, well, we, we've been through COVID, progress has been made the last 20 years. So why should I move and do this residential? You touched on this earlier, but would love to hear you flesh that out. What would you say to a student who's considering seminary feels called to ministry and says, I- I'm, I'm interested in moving, but is it really worth the effort for me to load up the U-Haul, put my stuff in there, drive to Kansas City or wherever the Lord calls me and do residential education?
0: I would say most often the answer is yes, but not always yes. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So before I I seek here conversationally to make the case why residential education is preferred, um, I want to make the case for theological education, period. Again, that's where I look out to a generation of churches that are in tremendous need. We're in the state of Missouri here as we record this podcast on our campus, Kansas City, Missouri. And again, as I just mentioned, we have students from all 50 states, and we rejoice in that. uh, I know regionally Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Iowa, and Texas, kind of our broader region here, the churches in particular are in great need, uh, looking for pastors, looking for student ministers, mm-hmm. looking for biblical counselors. And so though we have an institution now of, of approximately 5,000 students, um, I, I feel like I, I still don't have enough pastors to send them. I still don't have enough student ministers to send them. I still don't have enough biblical counselors to send them. I still don't have enough missionaries to send them for the, for the nations. Because there is this great generational transition we're experiencing where people are retiring, aging, dying out of ministry roles, and a new mm-hmm. generation of ministers needs to step up. So, we have the issue of needing in sufficient quantity a new generation of ministers to fill these urgent ministry slots. But not just in quantity, we need in quality. I mean, think about the complexity of our times. You asked what has changed in 30 years. Well, technologically, a lot has changed, but where's our society changed? Where's the culture changed? The needs of the church, how have those changed? We are facing issues as Christians, that we cannot imagine 30 years ago, you know, in some ways could imagine three years ago. Hmm. And so those who administer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they need more training, not less. They need to be equipped, not less. And they don't need to bounce through ministry for decades with like kind of sort of confident they know how to interpret and teach God's Word, kind of sort of confident that they can answer biblical and theological questions that their people are having kind of, sort of confident that they can help their people think through naughty cultural, ethical issues, you see? So I'm like, man, we need a, a new generation of ministers. We need them in great quantity. We need them to be robustly trained. And so they are fully qualified and confident to go out and serve. So I want to say to every person listening, potential students are those who know potential students. Uh, if you're a potential student, and this is not just a Midwestern Seminary plug that we'd be delighted to have you here in Spurgeon College, this is a plug, though, for you to take serious your ministry preparation mm. and for you to investigate uh, a theological institution that is theologically sound, that is on mission, that knows why they exist, that you can have full confidence in what you will be taught and how you will be shaped. So I want to give you that nudge. And to those mm. of you who are listening that, that have already completed your, your training in ministry, whether it's an innovative degree or doctoral degree or whatever, I want to say there are no doubt are people in your orbit who, who need you as their pastor, you as their mentor, you as an older brother, to give them that nudge that I was given now— just over 20 years ago, and it changed my life in all the right ways by me being given the notes, you know, to, you need to go prepare in seminary. Now, to take a step back and answer the other component of your question, Jared, about the, the residential versus the online, I think I answered your question a few moments ago, something like that, that most commonly or most often they need to move to campus. But I do want to be clear for each person, that's an individual investigation, a personal sense of calling, personal family circumstances. So some people may not be moving to campus and they're selecting to study online because they're already in a very consequential ministry place they're already getting new mission work overseas there's really not a need for them to be you know ripped out of that setting and come here especially if they're in an overall spiritually theologically uh, healthy place that they're serving right at the other end of that though there there's some people listening and and you know what the dad is 52. And he's got four kids, and two are in college, and one's in high school, and one's in middle school. And he works at the local factory, the local business, and is providing for his family. And God's calling him to ministry midlife. And it's probably bivocational. And so for him, faithfulness may not look like moving 600 miles to Kansas City. It may, may look like beginning to chip away an online MDiv degree. And over the next three or four years, you do that. And that's healthy for your family. You can still provide for them. You can serve in that bivocational vocational way. You can be prepared for greater ministry, and you can chip away at that degree in a way that is not too disruptive to these other noble, God-called assignments that you have. And so that has to be sussed out. What I don't want to happen, though, I speak of this often on campus, is I don't want individuals to kind of hide behind online programs as a way to avoid or to slow, to hinder God's calling their lives. Well, who would that be? This is the 24-year-old young man who God's called to ministry. You graduated from a Christian or secular institution you know, last May or last December or the May before that, and you, you for whatever reason, haven't got the nerve to go to seminary. And so you're kind of like living in your mom's basement. You're, uh, you know, you're, you're taking an online class or two a semester, and you're kind of bouncing along. And I want to say to you, go. Move. Receive this as a loving kick in the pants to actively <laughs> pursue training for ministry. And if you aren't already in a healthy church where you're being mentored, discipled by healthy elders and pastors, and you're already getting, being invested in, in in intentional and robust ways, then you probably need to go to seminary. You probably need to go now. And you probably need to, like, right now be thinking about, how do I get there as soon as possible? Because here's what I know about life, Jared. Life gets more complicated, not less. The barnacles increase, and they can be glorious god honoring barnacles. If you have a a spouse, you have to think more intentionally about how you provide and lead. If you have children, more Mm. intentionally about how you provide and lead. Uh, As you age, you'll have more financial commitments, most likely not less. And so delaying theological preparation never helps. It most always hinders and hurts and slows that which God's calling you to do.
1: Yeah, praise God. If you're listening and God has called you to ministry, there's energy there. But also you should hear from Dr. a sense of urgency that now is the time to pursue theological education and preparation. So as we talk about looking for a seminary, what are some things that a a prospective student should consider? What are some things when you were looking at seminary 20, 25 years ago that you you had to work through in order to make a decision to relocate? Well, that's a very good
0: question and a big question. We can go a lot of different ways with that. And uh, I want to try to go several different ways, but hopefully they'll build upon one another. And I want to speak both as one who now is in his 40s and leading institution and kind of gets to see this from one perspective. But also go back to uh, the young man that was, you know, 20-plus years ago when I was considering seminary, what I was wrestling through. Now, now the good news is some of those things I was thinking at the age of 20, 21, 22, I'm still thinking 20-plus years later. Some of those things, though, 20, 25 years ago when I was beginning to envision seminary, uh, I, I, I did not at all appreciate how much they would mean. And so, for instance, I, I'll come to that in a moment, but 20-plus but years ago, I thought to consider practicalities – Hmm. of, like, where I'll live and where I'll work and what I'll pay. Like, that was almost unspiritual to consider those. But now as one who leads an institution, deals with students all the time, I say, no, look, you need to be wise. You need to consider the practicalities, the logistics, how you actually make life work in seminary. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Great. But first, the big picture. Uh, first of all, then and now, uh, I knew and I know, it begins with what an institution actually believes. Hmm. And by what institutional action actually believes, I mean not just what it's formally stated by the institution corporately. I mean, what the faculty and instructional staff actually believe and teach. Just a few days ago, I was in a conversation with a colleague, and uh, we were referencing a, another institution, not a seminary, but, but a, quote, evangelical college that has a, they do have a, a school of religion as a part of it, And uh, this is a school that reputationally, um, I thought, was in a pretty good place uh, theologically. But it came to our attention that the school's policy for their faculty was not that they had to affirm personally their confessional statements, but that their faculty just simply would would choose not to teach outside of their confessional statements. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference between the two, a huge difference. And so you want to go to an institution that the faculty and instructional staff Actually, believes the confessional statement. So, what are those? Well, for us, it, it's uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it's the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, it's the Denver Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, it's the National Statement on Human Sexuality and Gender. And those are the big four. You should look for with every Southern Baptist and conservative evangelical seminary. Those are the big four. And uh, again, if you're looking at RTS, you're Presbyterian, obviously not the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, for instance. But for us, especially in the Baptist world, th- those are the big four that one should be looking at. And not merely does a seminary like have it posted on their website, buried somewhere, but is that mm-hmm. an actual active document that you know with full confidence that the teachers there not only teach it but believe it is regulative for the school. And you know when you're going to go there, that's what you will be strengthened in. And for me, now rewinding back to 20 years ago, I went to a, a college setting that was very secular, had a couple of required religious classes where you know, the Bible was was undermined and so forth. And so I, I knew I need to be the school not where I'm going to be playing defense for for three years, but I need mm. to be at school where I can just sit and learn and be invested in. Yeah. So number one, what does school believe? Number two, what is this mission? Why does it exist? And most seminaries have no idea why they exist. And, and that, that's a a, a shocking. But, but, I believe a, an accurate assessment. And so many seminaries are like shopping malls. They have a collection of a zillion degrees and programs they offer, seeking to cobble together sufficient enrollment uh, to pay the bills. But, as Churchill would famously say, and I'm paraphrasing here, there is no theme in that pudding.
1: Hmm.
0: And so, for us, there is a theme in the pudding., uh, it's for the church. And so everyone who knows us know that we are fanatically committed to training, Pastors and teachers and missionaries, evangelists, biblical counselors, et cetera, et cetera, for local church service. So that is our, our driving mission. That is why we exist. And so you need to know why exactly does this institution exist? Because why they exist many times makes as much of an impact on the student for good or bad than what they teach, mm. as, as, as shocking as that may sound. So what do they believe you know, why they exist. Thirdly, I'd say where they're going by way of vision. You know, what are they trying to accomplish next five years? What academic programs are they trying to build out? What are they investing in? You know, those sorts of things. And so you look at those big three, those come together to really state institutions' identity, what they believe, where they're going, and and why they exist. Conviction, uh, mission, why they exist, vision, where they're going, those three. So you want to go to a school that has a healthy and a faithful identity. And then you get into a host of issues that still matter, but are a little more practical. What's the vibe on campus? What's the culture like? Is it it a gospel-saturated community? Are people cheerful? Is there a general palpable sense of the great commission is urgent? The gospel is urgent. The church is adored and celebrated. Are those things on the campus? And then issues like, like, can I find a job near campus? Uh, Can I live on or near campus? Uh, if I 'm married, can my wife or, or my spouse can I envision them like being a part of a healthy community there uh, what's the vibe of the faculty? Are they accomplished by way of how much they've written but which is very important, but also are they accessible to students? Are they churchmen and church women as well? So a lot's going into it, but, but you're hearing some common themes here: what do they believe, why they exist, where are they going? And then some of the practical questions is, what's the feel on the ground? And, and can I like, live on or near a campus? Can I find a job? Are there healthy churches around the campus I can plug into? Are there ministry opportunities nearby that perhaps I want to pursue one day? A lot can go into it. And we haven't gotten into the whole affordability issue, um, how will I pay my bills while I'm there? We don't want students going to debt. To the best of our ability, we seek to uh, keep tuition down and seek to dissuade students from incurring debt as they would study here. So I gave you a big answer to a pretty straightforward question, but uh, it comes from a full heart.
1: Yeah, that, that's so helpful. I, I can I can only imagine that prospective students are, are benefiting from that. And then pastors who are listening, if you have someone considering ministry, these are all things that you can encourage uh, those, those aspiring pastors to consider as they think about theological education. And then to kind of cap it off, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love for you just to reflect on and provide some advice to students who are taking this conversation seriously, They're they're in the later stages of, making that decision to pursue theological education, how would you uh, encourage them to process that decision? What, what are some things that uh, they should be doing personally or if they're married with their, their spouse or their family as they get ready to finalize this decision?
0: Yeah, I, I would say really three different realms of input, of reflection. One is the congregational, uh, one is the personal, and one is the institutional. By personal, I don't merely mean just you. That does intersect with your, with your spouse if you have one, with your kids if you have one. So a part of them being excited about a move to seminary is them understanding dad has a plan of how we're going to do it and why we're going to do it. And it's clear that God is calling us to do it. And so most often, I'm speaking here specifically to those who are called to the pastorate, you know, to men at this point, the wife and kids are going to be excited about it if you're excited about it. They're going to be confident if you're confident that God is leading you and there's a plan there. So I'd say those usually are conversations, plural, not a conversation, singular, and being prayerful and thoughtful and, again, about the matters great and small why we're going, but also how we're going to do it. So that's the personal. Secondly, the congregational. Your pastor, your pastors, plural, godly men and women in your church who who know the lay of the land, who know you, and they can give you strong input as to where you should go and why you should go and how you should go. That congregation will not only affirm your call to ministry and, and recommend you to the seminary in a formal sense, they'll also love you and pray for you and support you perhaps, and so having a a healthy home church behind you that's sending you as you go, that can be a huge source of blessing, and in many ways is essential to going in the first place. The third thing I'll say is the institutional side, and that is, you know, faithful institution, their missions officers, they're not just like salesmen. You know, sure, they believe in the program. They're going to speak winsomely about the institution, right? But they're more than like salesmen and saleswomen. They're counselors. They're giving guidance, they're helping you to think through, okay, oh, here's where you can live, and here's how you get on campus. And if you have questions even lingering about your own call to ministry, well, well, like here at Midwestern, we work hard to help our admissions team, you know, answer the big questions and help students suss out some of those things. And so the institution ought to be, and praise God, in this case, we are a healthy partner in the deliberative process. Do I go? Where do I go? When and how do I go? all three of those categories, personal, congregational, institutional, come together to support and answer those questions.
1: Yeah, and I love our our admissions team even calls those team members admissions counselors because they view themselves as support staff to counsel and give wisdom and advice and prayer and encouragement. So, blessed to have a a great team here. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come in the studio and talk about theological education and look forward to continuing this conversation in the next episode.
0: Hey, thank you, Jared, so much to our listeners. Just delighted to be with you. And I pray this will be encouraging to you, this conversation. And also I encourage you, if you know someone considering seminary or Spurgeon College, please point them to this podcast, and we pray the Lord will use in their life. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.